management of ACS. Um, and they'll, of course, as you know, slightly differ between an ST elevation MI and a non-ST elevation MI slash unstable angina. So we'll start off with the non-ST elevation MI scenario. Um, so the first thing to do would be to prognosticate the patient with a GRACE score, and this will help guide further management. And it has eight factors. Um, you don't necessarily need to know this in depth, but it's useful to know, uh, also practically useful to know. There are four continuous variables, which are age, systolic blood pressure, heart rate, and creatinine. Uh, three yes or no questions. So has the patient had a VF or VT arrest in the context of the chest pain? Um, and do they have uh, ischemic uh, ECG changes? Um, and also their killip class of heart failure too. And from here, the practical aspects of management uh, would be uh, A, ensuring that the patient is on a cardiac monitor if they're suspicious uh, 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 in the context of uh, non-SC elevation MI uh, chest pain, informing the PCI team about the patient, um, and then medically managing them with analgesia if they're in pain, and options might include opiates or GTN, which can be given sublingually or intravenously, uh, oxygen, if their oxygen saturations are, are less than 94%, antiplatelet therapy, and this is usually a combination of aspirin, a, a COX inhibitor, and a P2Y12 inhibitor, such as uh, aspirin, clopidogrel, uh, sorry, such as clopidogrel, prasugrel, or ticagrelor. And an important point that you may wish to uh, convey is that when you're considering which uh, antiplatelet to use, this is all, as Balrog earlier mentioned, firstly, based on your bleeding risk, uh, which will include from your drug history if they're on a uh, on warfarin or a, a NOAC, uh, and also the operator preference, um, which is practically very important. Um, and on the topic of P2Y receptor inhibitors, um, so going through them, clopidogrel, um, an important point to know about clopidogrel, so the advantage is it has a lower bleeding risk compared to the others, and it's therefore used if the patient is also on a, a NOAC, the main disadvantage of it and why it's not first line typically is it's a pro-drug and it's hepatically activated, meaning that there's a greater variability in action between people. Um, and then you have ticagrelor and prasugrel, uh, which are typically first line over clopidogrel. And then finishing off the important medical aspects, you'd also want to put the patient on a direct thrombin inhibitor such as fondoparanux, low molecular weight heparin. Uh, but again, this harks back to the point of uh, management is typically based on, on a uh, local preference and operator preference. Um, and uh, of course, percutaneous coronary intervention is the next step in management um, prognostically within the first 72 hours uh, for a, a non-ST elevation MI or unstable angina. Now that's the management pre percutaneous coronary intervention. Balric, we'll stop there and I'll, I'll touch base with you. Anything um, that you think is worth adding? Uh, <clears throat> the only nuggets, uh, I remember my SHO days, SHO days when I found out that there are a portion of people, which is actually quite high, that are clopidogrel non-responders. Um, so uh, some centers uh, might test if patients are clopidogrel non-responders. Uh, so that's just important to know. And I think before most cardiac surgery, uh, they do that. Uh, and yeah, I think just knowing that, I think that's a five, out, the five out of five point is what you were talking about, that clopidogrel has a lower bleeding risk 
Uh, so sometimes used in patients who are on other no action of a higher bleeding risk for other reasons, um, as the choice of antidote to join aspirin. Otherwise, ticagrelor is uh, a fairly well used one. Uh, other things to be, be aware of are thinking about the patient's likelihood of compliance, because if a patient's unlikely to be compliant, it's actually perhaps dangerous to put a stent in, uh, because mm. it may be stable now, but if a stent, if you have it, stent thrombosis, acute stent uh, thrombosis from, um, from not taking due antibiotic therapy or non-compliance, that's actually perhaps more harmful than the original uh, MI. Um, <clears throat> so that's probably the only the only, the only nuggets. Uh, I really like that. Yeah, that, that's a five out of five point. That is in your, in your drug history compliance. Um, yeah. yeah, love it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, then discussing the management after percutaneous coronary intervention. Um, so it's important to uh, start prognostic medical management, which we'll talk about first, which includes a high-dose statin, uh, dual antiplatelet therapy if uh, a stent has been inserted and we'll talk about the nuances of that in a bit more detail shortly a beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor now a scenario may arise where uh, you have uh, admitted a patient um, and uh, they may need uh, percutaneous coronary intervention more urgently than the 72 hours. Um, so indicators of this, uh, where they need more urgent uh, attention, uh, would include ongoing chest pain. Uh, secondly, if they have a, that high-risk ECG, which we mentioned earlier, such as a Wellen syndrome or left main stem disease, if they have left ventricular failure on their transthoracic echo, if there are any occupational pressures, and also if they have a very high GRACE score. Um, there would be five particularly important points. Anything else comes to mind, um, Barrick? Um, I think this is, this is very important. This is, like, mm. I think management is where you really start differentiating between your uh, three and four out of fives versus your five out of fives. Um, and it's key to know management well. And so things that what you just went through of those five things, I think there are a few things that indicate going to lab overnight and the other ones probably indicate going to lab the next day. And those are really important things to know when you're going to consult out of bed overnight. So uh, ongoing, on, ongoing chest pain that's not relieved by GTN infusion. Uh, so you're doing it, on a, doing it for that reason, especially with uh, nasty looking ECG changes. But I think the important ECG changes that you know, take you to get you to get the consultant out of bed overnight is, um, as you said, uh, Wellens or left main stem disease. So ST elevation AVR or Wellens with the ECG. Uh, and the other thing is if they're, I suppose if they're unstable overnight, uh, so if they've got, you know, mm. worsen, worsen form edema or hypotension, which is related, which you think is related directly to their end stem, it means that it's the patient needs to revascularize overnight. The other ones, so let's say you've just got heart failure on your echo um, or occupational pressures or a high grace score, those are ones that you would try and do in the next 24 hours, i.e. the next day, if you're, let's say this is overnight, uh, but wouldn't necessarily uh, get your patient out of bed, get your consultant out of bed overnight to bring them in and activate the primary, primary PCI pathway. So it's just important to know the difference between uh, the nuances between those two. Those two. Yeah, okay. So then moving on to the topic of antiplatelet therapy. Um, so one consideration is the length of therapy. Um, 
And again, um, this is center dependent and uh, operator dependent. Um, but the ESC gives some general guidance on this. So for acute uh, coronary um, syndromes um, with a, a stent and so dual antibiotic therapy is generally recommended for 12 months. For chronic coronary disease, typically six months of dual antibiotic therapy with a stent. Um, and an associated common scenario is managing a patient co-prescribed a uh, NOAC or a vitamin K antagonist, warfarin. Um, and again, um, the prescription of what you do is center dependent and operator dependent, um, but it essentially it'd be based on the risk of uh, stent thrombosis and restenosis and the bleeding risk of the patient. And therefore, practically, they should always be guided by the operator because clearly they're in the best place to answer these questions. But the ESC gives general guidance, which is essentially triple therapy of your NOAC slash warfarin, aspirin and clopidogrel. Clopidogrel, as we mentioned, because of a lower bleeding risk for one to four weeks. The, uh, following that, the NOAC and clopidogrel for uh, 12 months and then a NOAC thereafter. Um, but again, practically, you may found a different experience, but that's the general ESC guidance. Anything to add there, Barrick? Um, no, just a little nugget is that I suppose if you know a patient's got a high bleeding risk um, or they're on <coughs> a concomitant NOAC, uh, it's, that's an important thing to flag up to the operator because then your operator, different stents also require different uh, lengths of dual antibiotics. Uh, so different brands of stents. Uh, so whilst you don't know the ends of that, so which stents mean which ones, uh, that's important because the operator then may choose different types of stents. So if you said something like, this patient's uh, got a high bleeding risk um, and so therefore I'd talk to the uh, cath lab team and the operator beforehand so they're aware of this, they could perhaps think about choosing, uh, perhaps choosing the right stent uh, for them in terms of duration of dual antibiotic therapy. Um, so that's a nice thing to say. Um, you know, you can be correct about the triple therapy, it does vary, um, but the most important period of time in general uh, to emphasize to the patient and important for us guys to know as well is that the first initial period, especially the first month, if not three months of dual antibiotic therapy to prevent uh, acute stent thrombosis, which is uh, often worse than the original heart attack. So that's why we're so, so hot on it, so worried about it. Often is worse and often is uh, fatal as well. So it's um, a real worry for all cardiac operators. Okay. So that's your general basic management of the non SC elevation MI and unstable angina. Uh, moving on to SC elevation MI. Um, as you will know, there's a lot of overlap. So again, you'll be mentioning that you ensure the patient's on a cardiac monitor, you'll be informing the PCI team. Um, and you'll still be initiating the medical management of analgesia, oxygen, antiplatelet therapy, and a direct thrombin inhibitor. Again, considering kind of local policy operator preference. Um, and the difference comes- I mean, I mean, often because they're going, and often because the STEMIs will go to a lab straight away, you don't often uh, start fondopyrolux on these patients because they're going straight to the lab. The fondopyrolux will definitely be used in our end STEMIs. The STEMI only there's a delay in them going to the labs. Yeah, correct. Sorry. Um, thank you, Barrett. Um, now, the difference really becomes about timing of PCI, which um, is as urgent as possible in a SC elevation MI, where time is myocardium. And the important thing to not forget uh, is that if no PCI is available within two hours, then thrombolysis is, a, is an alternative treatment strategy 
which does come up in, in interviews as a potential question. Um, and the important thing to know is if thrombolysis is given, uh, that uh, rescue PCI should be considered at 90 minutes um, if the ECG has not resolved by at least 50%. Uh, following on from that, uh, medical management uh, after the coronary intervention continues to be the same with a high dose statin, dual antiplatelet therapy, a beta blocker, and an ACE inhibitor. Um, now that's the uh, specifics of management of a SC elevation MI. Um, Barrick, anything to add? No, I think as a, as a really nice point about thrombolysis, uh, I didn't even really fully understand, appreciate that definition. So that's a useful point for myself. Fifty percent after ninety minutes. Uh, yeah, like the absolute key in STEMIs or STEMI equivalents is activate knowing how to activate the primary PCI pathway and understanding what uh, what staff come with that. Um, that's a question that seems to have come up uh, previously. So knowing the staff that you need to do primary PCI. Uh, but often there'll be a rotor where once you activate the call, those staff will all get called. Yeah. Uh, just just, just FYI, so you need a radiographer, you need a, uh, a nurse, you need a physiologist and uh, a consultant on the absolute bare minimum for primary PCI. You read my mind. I was going to ask you, why don't you describe this? Stuff? <laughs> <laughs> and, and plus minus anaesthetists if they're unwell. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Yeah. That's it. Okay. Now, an important aspect that uh, is, is uh, important to never forget is also the lifestyle advice that you'd advise a patient post uh, an MI. So firstly, uh, education is arguably the most important intervention uh, to allow a patient to take ownership of their condition um, and modify those modifiable vascular risk factors. Um, exercise advice, typically the, the advice is uh, advising people to exercise 20 to 30 minutes a day to ensure slight breathlessness. Um, and this is kind of helped through a referral to a cardiac rehabilitation program. Um, the uh, thinking about sex, the advice is no sex for four weeks, no sildenafil for six months. Uh, diets, advising a low fat diet, which uh, can include a Mediterranean diet. Um, moving on to driving, um, a basic understanding of driving rules may be questioned in the interview. Um, and the best resource I'd advise is the DVLA website, um, the cardiovascular diseases section of it. Um, and, and on the topic of ACS for uh, group one drivers, uh, the, the rules are just as a reminder, no driving for one week if they've had PCI, uh, if they've been medically managed four weeks. Um, and for group two drivers uh, at six weeks, if their left ventricular ejection fraction is greater than 40% and they have a normal exercise stress test, then they can drive. Um, um, Anything else to add uh, there, Balric? No, I think that's a, again, like <laughs> very, very uh, deal advice. I think it's, I think also the flavor is kind of up to you. So you definitely need to talk about post MI lifestyle advice. Uh, and I'll just pick out a few things uh, from that scene. So that, you know, I think, well, I think for me personally, I think the most important is the cardiac rehab team. Um, so I'd say post, I, post MI, I'd really want to think about. Uh, lifestyle advice and think about prevention of further events. Um, so that's really important to link up with the cardiac rehab team to talk about the car, uh, their diet, their exercise regime, 
uh, and other factors such as smoking and something like that would be, I think, entirely important. But yeah, the best candidates don't, uh, the best candidates mention it, the, uh, and the, just the slightly good candidates just forget, unfortunately. Uh, and I, I think driving advice is really good. If I ever go asked about driving advice, I think because it can often change, and I don't ever want to nail my colours to the flag post, I actually often say, I would double check the DVLA guidelines um, just to make sure they haven't changed since the last check. And as far as I know, it's uh, ACS one week is being revascularized. Um, and I would, for group two, I'd say, and for group two, it is, and for group two, obviously, these requirements are more stringent. So I would look, I would look them up again. I think sometimes it might be too much to go into the ins and outs of group two unless it's typically asked you. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um... Now, I'll, being an EP man, Balric, uh, I'll allow you to talk about um, ICDs post um, ACS. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, after, this may be a completely separate clinical scenario, uh, but if you can, if, in your, if, you get, if you're talking about STEMI or NSTEMI uh, and ischemia, and you talk about post-MI, you're talking about the education and all those things which are fairly important, but you also want to be talking about managing their heart failure if they're, if they're left with... Uh, ischemic cardiopathy as a result of their MI. Uh, and the important thing is to know about the cutoffs and thresholds for an ICD. So that's 40%. So if, they're, if their ejection fraction is less than 40% after six weeks later, after um, appropriate prognostic therapy for heart failure, so that's at least beta blockers and uh, uh, MRA, such as spironolactone or pleuronone, uh, then they need an ICD. Um, and so that's, I think, really, really impressive for those candidates to manage to put that into their answer. You know, of the MI, manage them on the wards, also think about doing a baseline echo. And if there's uh, an impaired EF, starting prognostic medications, because if their heart failure doesn't improve and they've still got an EF less than 40% six weeks later, um, we need to be thinking about things such as ICDs. So that's an important thing to be thinking about with such patients. Uh, you know, so I think that's a nice one to mention. Also, they may talk about post-MI, reperfusion arrhythmias, these are common, and you often see patients on CCU post-STEMI uh, or post-revascularization with uh, runs of non-sustained VT. These are important to monitor, but it's also important to recognize they are common uh, and will generally resolve by themselves. They don't need such aggressive treatment. Uh, and a fair, a fair treatment option for, uh, for this electrical excitability is simple beta blockers, so for sulfuroxone, if they're really being troubled by their non-sustained BT uh, post revascularization. Fantastic. Okay. Um, thanks, Barrett. So, another potential uh, scenario that may come up is providing uh, consenting someone for an angiogram, and you may be asked to briefly uh, talk through that. Um, and a potential structure to answering this question. Um, now, it may be that you will be asked to consent them as if you were consenting a patient. So you'd be need to be discussing in layman's terms. We might need to describe it more in a kind of clinical uh, manner. Um, so a potential structure could be to, well, that, I, that I'd recommend is summarizing it in layman's terms to the patient first. Uh, and then when describing the procedure using the structure of a pre-procedure during and after, and then describe the intended risks and benefits as you would consent normally. And the basic principle is uh, it's, uh, you could describe it as a special x-ray study to look at the blood vessels supplying the heart to look for blockages. And what happens? So before the procedure, you would sign a formal consent form 
you'd be you'd have your heart rate and blood pressure monitored and you'd lie on a bed you're awake and you can talk to the doctor throughout and then during the procedure you have some local anesthetic or a numbing agent to the wrist or to the groin uh, a dye is injected uh, via the wrist or the groin and x-rays are taken to look at the heart arteries and then a small wire is inserted uh, to the blood vessels of the heart from the wrist or the groin and a balloon can then be inflated over the narrowing uh, or a metal mesh left over the area to keep things uh, open. And if this occurs, you'll need to be on some tablets for life to ensure it doesn't close up again. And then after uh, explaining the fact that it's typically a day case procedure, if all goes well, you're kept in for some observations. Um, you may need to get some help going home. And typically some pressure uh, is, is kept around the wrist or the groin depending on where the procedure was done. Um, now that's a, a more detailed explanation and, and actually will provide uh, a worked example in a later video, but in the interview scenario, you, um, you may not go into as much depth here. Um, now the intended benefits are of course different in uh, chronic coronary disease or acute coronary uh, disease. Um, in acute coronary disease, essentially it is increasing your risk of survival and um, potentially without intervention, there's a significant risk of death. Um, in coronary, chronic coronary disease, it's more done for symptoms. Um, and the risks you can generally group uh, into local arterial site access complications, including bleeding, bruising, and damage, um, which are very rare, typically less than 0.1%. Uh, uh, they can also be uh, grouped into dye and contrast reactions, such as kidney damage or allergic reactions, uh, funny heart rhythms causing, uh, requiring an emergency shock, um, uh, damage to the coronary arteries requiring a stent, um, an emergency stent. Uh, there's also a risk of stroke and there's also a risk of death. And the risks vary uh, and are obviously higher depending on whether this is a, an acute scenario or a chronic scenario. Uh, Balric, anything to add about the consenting uh, for an angiogram? So I think in preparing someone for an angiogram, I think it's just, we talk about feeling the right radio pulse. I think in any um, STEMI situation, you need to get in there that you're going to have the pads on, um, mm. the defib pads on, because there's always a high risk that they can go into PT or VF during the procedure. Uh, and so you don't want to have a patient who then need to be going under the drapes, we put their pads on during the procedure whilst they're in VF. Um, and secondly, uh, always prep the groin as well as, so that means the nurse before the procedure uh, will need to shave the groin down. So those are two things that I think really mark someone out as having had cardiac experience. Uh, so really five out of five level answers. So pads on, prep the groin, those are two things I say. Um, and <clears throat> then for the procedure itself, you're right, in terms of uh, consenting, no, you need to have a good detailed understanding of all the things that we've all went through. Um, and then you can, you can, again, it's important to kind of come up with your own way of consenting a patient and that seems natural to you. So uh, I might say things like, you know, so this procedure, there's a, it's the general risk of uh, complications is less, less than 1% for a, a chronic, uh, chronic uh, coronary artery disease. Um, but the main things that the things that are more common are things such as uh, problems with the access site and bleeding and bruising, which is slightly more common, 
and then rarer things uh, such as damage to the vessels that requires further intervention. And then I, just, I actually just go up myself personally, this is so everyone can use their own one, but I go up and say, uh, and then uh, uh, rarer, more serious things uh, such as stroke, uh, damage, damage to the lungs, um, damage to the heart tissue, fluid accumulation on the heart wall and death, but the chance of all these things happening uh, are very unlikely. And you can put numbers, but I think sometimes if you put too many numbers, you can trip yourself up. Um, so it's important to be aware of the numbers, but don't quote, I, I, don't, I don't generally quote them uh, unless asked. I've got a group into common and things that to be expected and then things that are rare. Um, I think your point about the acute situation, I think it's really important and a five out of five answer. If someone can say, I would consent them for an ant, if someone can say in an acute situation, especially a STEMI situation, and especially more so if they're unstable, I would um, consent them and quote a higher risk um, of complications during the procedure because they are unstable and this is an acute scenario. Um, and I think that shows a really good level of understanding for the fact that the same procedure can have different levels of risk depending on the patient's pre-morbid state and the, uh, the setting which you're doing the procedure. I think that's a really nice touch that you talked about there. So I would egg that point if it's a STEMI, I definitely far off and quote my higher risk uh, in the realms of one to five percent complications, whereas if it's a, a more stable plan procedure, it's a less than one percent risk of complications. Okay, fantastic. Um, thanks, Barak. So uh, that, that brings an end to our knowledge video about acute chest pain uh, ischemia. Um, and hopefully this has given you a flavor of the level of knowledge uh, and the detail of knowledge that would be expected um, and some pearls that you can put in there to really uh, sell yourself as, as that five out of five candidate. Um, thanks for watching. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, and yeah, hopefully, I hope you enjoy the scenarios to come.